Due to COVID-19, this podcast was recorded remotely and may contain adult language and themes. TV DNA interview of actor Richard Sutton, a.k.a. PC Kieran Bloom, a.k.a. Sir James Ross, in the presence of Superintendent Adam Hemming, DCI Neil Shepek and DCS Damo Cooper. So, Mr Sutton, can you explain what you were doing on the set of Series 5 of The Line of Duty? Welcome to the podcast, Rich. How are you? Hello, boys. I'm really well, thank you. How are you guys? Yeah, we're good. Hi, everyone. Delighted to have you on on the podcast. Really excited. Can you remind us what it was your character did on on the line of duty, first of all? Yes. So PC Kieran Bloom appears, I think, at halfway through series five, line of duty, and he's he's slightly bent. He's just slightly at an angle, I think, rather than the full sort of um, boomerang. He was asked by a character to call in a sort of code red to draw attention away from a heist that was taking place at the police station. And so he said there's oil on the road and he crashed his car. And then the clever bods, the grown-ups, checked out the oil and found out that the oil on the road was the same as the oil on my hands. And so I was brought in for the highlight of my career, one of the world's most famous line of duty interviews in the glass box. So I was that, that's the thing for me that was so exciting was taking part in an actual line of duty interview. That's like the, um, it's better than Oscar, I think. <laughs> Getting a reg 15. Yes, yeah, exactly. So, uh, so yeah, so I got a good dressing down by um, Martin and, and Taj in the, uh, in the interview scene. Was it nerve wracking doing that, that moment of, of being interrogated? It really was actually, it was really useful though, because I could use those nerves as part of the sort of character, really. Originally, I auditioned for Line of Duty uh, way back for a a different role in series one, I think, back in 2012. I auditioned for um, DS Buckles, who pops up, I think, a couple of times in in later series. Brilliant, Nigel, Nigel Boyle plays that role. And then they brought me back in to audition I worked with Jed before on a show called Bodies. I don't know if you boys remember that. Yes, yeah, yeah. Had uh, Max Beasley in and Keith Allen and was set in a hospital and and was brilliant. And so I played a small part in that and that's where I first met Jed. And then I auditioned for him for, uh, he did a version of Lady Chatterley's Lover, an awful audition that went really bad. And then he brought me back in, blessing for for Kieran Bloom. So I was was really, really nervous because it's such a well-established show now such a big family everybody knows each other and you guys know going in as as a sort of day player as it were to an established family is just really scary but they were brilliant they were really they were aware of that and they knew that you know it was something special that they were making and joining in series five like you did i think series five was a real turning point when it became such a huge part of the zeitgeist before that lots of people liked it but that was when we started seeing adverts for Series 5 everywhere, trailers, social media was going absolutely crazy for it, much like Season 6 that's on right now. So I guess that, that must have been really exciting as well, joining it as it started to really become quite a big part of the national conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think the series has got better and better and as it's gone on because of that, because of that marketing. 
until I appeared and it started to go downhill <laughs> again. <laughs> I brought the level right down. But yeah, you're right, it was on the side of buses. They were getting stupid figures that you just didn't didn't see. And, and of course, he, he did uh, the Bodyguard TV series around the same time, which got stupid viewings. And it was really exciting. I, I was really lucky, really pleased to do it. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the figures for season six, the last two episodes, or, or certainly the first episode, is the largest figures they've ever had. Mm. And that's really saying something because they have been building those. What I would love to ask to get to the point is, who do you think H is? Good question. I haven't seen any of series six at all. I haven't got a Scooby-Doo. I'm totally lost in it, to be honest with you now. It's like, it does so many twists and turns and it just plays with so many red herrings. And then the whole Morse code thing from, you know, series ago, you think, Christ, that's the level we're thinking at now. I, I had no idea. I thought we just got to see everything and then we, we choose, but apparently not. It's just, I don't have a clue. I sort of, I've taken a step back, I think, from it now and just let it wash over me because I just... I think they need to bring Columbo in and they're like a super group of detectives to sort of work this out. I'd love to see Columbo in, uh, in Line of Duty. What do you think? We did, uh, we did in, our, in our preview episode talk about who we thought H, H might be. I think, you know, on, based on my theory that you've got to have a H in your name to be, to be a suspect, I think we can safely rule out PC Kieran Bloom from, uh, <laughs> from being the big H. Although there is an H at the end of Harold Bloom, I think I remember it saying on the uh, on the script. No, that's not true. These names. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about the scripts, we had a, a question from a, a listener, G Coop seventy nine, also known as Geraldine Cooper. She said, "I heard in an interview with Martin Compton that they encrypt scripts as they're worried about leaks. How much did you know about the overall storyline? Was it just your scenes, full episodes, or the whole series? What do you get sent in advance?" So they sent to me literally just the interview scene and on the script it was watermarked with my name so if it were to be scanned in or photographed or anything it was it would be blatantly obvious who spilt it I didn't know what had gone before I didn't know what was going to happen to my character after it was just that bit which is really difficult going into an audition just playing the moment because you know you, you've no idea how how bad it's been before or what really really happened although it's a sort of confessional scene but I don't know if I'm still telling the truth in that confession so I don't know do I play that really truthfully or do I play it truthfully as if I'm lying to take the flack for it you don't you just have to take it's like a crapshoot really they sent the, the full script before the filming so I found out what was going on in that scene but the other episodes I had no idea didn't know so how much help do you get from the director there so the director, John, and the script supervisor will sort of take you to one side and we'll, we'll give you the, this is why you're saying this, this is before, this is what happened, this is where you're coming from. I was really worried. I'm the world's worst driver. I passed my test really late in life. And I remember reading the script and there's this high-speed car chase and then I skid on the oil and I end up in the ditch. And I was shitting myself. I thought, well, that's, I I'm actually going to crash for real. I'm going to, you know, kill five camera people and it's going to be a nightmare. And then I got to set and I was shaking. I thought, I'm going to stall the car in front of all these, you know, stunt drivers and crew. We're all going to be, oh, you idiot. Um, and then the director came over and said, we've already crashed the car. Just get in. And they put this little blood on my nose. 
and they did it all via walkie-talkie in posts. So about six months later, I was in a small studio in Soho doing the uh, doing a voiceover down the down the walkie-talkie, which was which was great. So um, I was very pleased about that. I think I'm right in saying that we filmed the interview bit before we filmed the crash. They tell you what you need need to know, but no more. I've just done something really recently, which they give you a script on an iPad and it disappears once you've read it, which is uber sort of secret. See, they get so paranoid about it. You can imagine why, but that's that's really strange. That they? happens in a bodyguard, doesn't it? I'm pretty sure Keely Orr's character gets some information that deletes itself. It also happens a lot in Inspector Gadget, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and Colombo. <laughs> I've got a question about Martin Comston because I saw him interviewed just before season six aired and hadn't realised how Scottish he was. Does he switch just just before he goes into the scene? Is he chatting in you know in his, his normal, or is he more method and he's kind of in in the Steve Arnott zone? Totally the latter. He he didn't drop his accent once between between shots. Even after the scene, he had more to film that day, and I and I was wrapped for the day, so I went to say thank you, and and he was still in that brilliant accent that he plays. He's so focused; he runs the whole thing. He's he's very aware that he's you know number one on the call sheet, sort of thing. Um, lovely, lovely, lovely man. Very caring. Know, knows everything. Knows what angles. He throws throws up suggestions. Offers stuff out to the. The director asks for another take if if he wants to try something. You know, asks if he has time to, to try something different. And he's very very aware that he's, he carries a lot of it on his shoulders. He's brilliant, actually. Really really impressive actor. And lives in Las Vegas. He's got it all made. Really? Mm, he lives in Las Vegas. I mean, no. His music's my ears as to how lovely and professional he is. But he he flies over from Las Vegas to film Line of Duty. Yeah. It's incredible. I think he's. I think his wife's an actress, and they and they both live in Vegas. And then he flies over to Belfast. Yeah, amazing, really. But when it comes to the actual day on set, so it's filmed in Belfast, right? Obviously, you did. You said you did the voiceover in Soho, but the glass box is in Belfast. Yes, I think. I think I'm right in saying the first two series were Birmingham. Yes. Um, or maybe three series, and then uh, yeah, it moves to Belfast. It's all filmed in a disused office block. I think the Beeb have either bought it or rented it out for a year or so, and they can float walls in and in and out. They've got all the sort of cabling set up, and I think they do all the glass box stuff in a one. So they'll set aside six, seven days, and they'll just run it and run it. And I think they, I think it was multiple cameras, so they had about three cameras on us which is great because you don't have to sort of turn everything around and it's you can just smash through it. I think it took took a long, long time to get that whole whole scene in the can. The outdoor stuff was filmed in a little side road in Belfast. By now, they, they just know exactly what they're doing. John Strickland, the director, and all the cast have been working together. And Jed is on set throughout as well. So he sees that every single take he just runs the whole thing him and him and the director really they just they're, they're constantly changing questioning the details of the numbers on the the ranking was all is all set up photograph was taken and an, a photo id which i stole i think i've got it somewhere of my character in a lanyard a police lanyard is all set up for you the devil's in the detail as they say i suppose especially with line of duty I, as you said i know you said you're keeping a distance from it so at the moment 
but there are people going crazy on social media of all these tiny things in the background of everything. What's on Kate's computer? What's on the buckles back wall of his office? So you're absolutely right. Jed's got a really good eye for that. And obviously the creative team around him. I think, as you said, you were a day player on Line of Duty and that's lots of really useful information, but what's it like to be on set? So just kind of like, so you wake up, your call time, going on sex. I think a lot of people would be interested in hearing what that experience is like. Sure. The outside stuff, the car stuff was a night shoot. So they send a driver to the hotel and he or she stands there in the lobby with your with your name on it. And then you come down and your your phones are a, sort of the day before by the assistant director who gives you a call time. And then you jump in the car and then they drive you to the set and... By this time, the sort of rising tide of vomit is working its way up. The nerves, the nerves are kicking in. And then you get taken to set, which or unit based, which is made up of a load of trailers, huge trailers, two ways and three ways, they call them. The main cast, I think, have these lovely, not Hollywood style, but nice big trailers, but the smaller parts have a part of a two-way or a three-way, which is basically a a large trailer broken into two or three little rooms. And I was taken to mine. And then I get put in there and hanging up is my uniform and the sides. The sides are basically a very small version of the script of the scenes that you're filming that day. And on the front is a call sheet and that's got everyone's mobile numbers on and the order that they're hoping to shoot in, what time the sun's going to set, what time dinner is being served, all that sort of stuff, all the important stuff. And then you sit there and then uh, a runner will come and knock on the door and take you to makeup. I think in that scene, because I had a lot of blood and things, they were going to do most of the makeup on set because it would have dried and it wouldn't be fresh blood and it would be letters from annoyed in Tunbridge Wells would write in and say, why is Kieran Bloom's blood all dry and caked when he's just had the accident? So we go into makeup and then we get changed and then somebody comes and checks that you've put your elbow pads on your elbows and not on your knees and your helmet's the right way and all that sort of stuff. And then you sit and you wait for six, seven hours. You do Sudoku, you phone home, you try and get eggheads on your phone to watch. You you go through your lines again and again and again. You start doing press-ups to try and remind yourself to stay awake. And then finally, the, the door will someone knock at the door and you'll get back into a car and they'll drive you to the location and you'll be introduced to everyone. You'll instantly forget everybody's name. And then they'll put a big coat over you and someone will stand with an umbrella, hold that over your head and you become very grand and you think, well, this is obviously because I'm, I'm a superstar. And then they explain it's just to keep your uniform dry and <laughs> nothing at all to do with you. And then I was put into this car, which had been smashed into a side of the road and the blood was attached to my face. And then we show the scene. So that means we go through the whole scene for all the departments to watch. So makeup will watch it, lighting will watch it, sound, and they will get a good idea of what it's going to look like when you come to record. Then you maybe have a rehearsal on camera, which they tend to shoot just in case. It's brilliant. And they end up using that one. And then we, we sort of film it as many times as they wish, hoping that it doesn't start raining or something changes. And then just lots of waiting around between those scenes. And then before you know it, it's sort of four o'clock, five o'clock, and the sun's starting to come up again, so it's time to cut. And then we all just go back home and sleep. And that was the external stuff, and pretty much the same for the studio stuff, except it's it's slightly quicker because they're in charge of a lot more stuff. They're in charge of the lighting there. They know where the cameras will be. And as I say, they can float in, move in windows or move out screens or whatever. And, and it's a touch quicker in terms of the logistics of filming. That was a very long answer. Sorry. 
No, that's great. And I can imagine that the logistics of the filming must be even more tricky when you add in all the kind of DIR stuff and the screen has to work and the handing of the folder. I know as an actor as well, like all it takes is a whole bit to go well. And then somehow you kind of pick up the folder in a little bit of a weird way and you got stuck, do it again if they can't, you know, just in case they can't cut to a different shot to cover it. So that must be quite intimidating. It's horrible. And, and because because everyone's on it, because they know their own arc of the, all the regular characters know their own arc. They know what's happening. They know, they've got a good shorthand with the crew to come in and not know any of that. And you've just got to play the moment as it were, is really hard. And they don't stop in the interview scenes. They just go all the way through. And so the whole scene with the pauses and all that sort of stuff would take seven or eight minutes per scene. And so as you're absolutely right, Damo, as you're getting towards the end of the scene, your brain, for some reason, it's this self-sabotage thing of your brain just says, right, I'm not going to tell you the last line now just because I feel like it. And so you can just, I'll be able to see when I watch it back, well, that's the bit where I started to really panic. You can just see a little flicker in the, in the eye, the eyelash. And of course, people watching, oh God, look at that. You can really see him panicking. You see, see Kieran, this is where they find out that he's, he's a bent copy. You can see it and it's not, it's just me thinking, I haven't got a Scooby-Doo what I'm going to say next. That's, anyway. that's quite rare though as well, that, that, that they would be filming a seven to eight minute scene through like that because usually for people who aren't in the industry you're kind of usually getting quite shorter chunks of of narrative a couple of pages maybe and then the action will go to somewhere else and so as an actor the pressure's off because you go right well this bit is just literally two three minutes fine let's get that nailed on and then we'll go to the next bit but that's really impressive you're right and I, and I think uh, Martin said in an interview that their record was something like a 15 or 16 minute shot or something ridiculous like that, which, as you say, is unheard of. You, even even those brilliant movies like Birdman that all seem to be in one shot, you can see where they cut. Hitchcock did it lots of times as well, where the camera will go behind a pillar and the screen will go black and then it'll come out the other side, but you know it's a cut there, although it looks seamless in, in the edit. But, yeah, that whole thing is in real time, that tension. And, and I almost corpse, because you'll remember in the scene, that I, I had my sort of union rep, my sort of solicitor, next to me and at one point Arnott says your your best case is to admit it now and confess sort of thing and then there's a big pause where I'm thinking oh what do I do and I lean over to listen to my solicitor who in the script says he whispers something to him and uh, the the actor the, the supporting artist leans into my ear and goes <laughs> I wasn't expecting any sort of proper line from him or anything like that, but just maybe silence or or just something like, you better confess or something. But it was literally, I just got a... And I was like, oh, shh. So that, you'll see in the final cut that my hand just goes over my mouth, not, not just because I'm worried I'm going to smile or stop. Like you're, like you're a cat. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, I did have some craving for a sauce of milk as well after the scene, I remember. So it must, must have worked. What's really interesting, Rich, is that although a lot of our listeners are massive Line of Duty fans, and there's been a lot of really positive reactions to you coming on and talking to us about Line of Duty, most of our questions have actually been about the terror. We, we, we've had a lot of interest in terror, and all three of us are are all really excited about the series. I've watched episode one. Is it fair to ask you, Rich, as to telling us a bit about what it's about? Sure. So it's based on a, a true story. 
partner the the events are true so in 18 I think 1845 there was um, a huge arctic expedition where two ships were sent off by the british navy to try and find the northwest passage as a sort of trade route which is the passage that connects the atlantic and the pacific oceans real cold weather stuff three four year expedition all this is true and there were two ships one was called hms erebus and one was called hms terror i always think when they were offering out uh, who's going to be taking which ship like right who wants erebus so all the arms would go up and say yeah yeah rather than the one called the terror yeah please um so these two ships went off and they got stuck in ice they got stuck in for years and sunk and, and disappeared without trace. All that bit is true. And then in 1994, uh, there was a, a, a book came out called The Terror, which was a sort of fictionalized account of what happened to those crew members. And it gets very dark and quite supernatural and became a bit of a, a sort of cult classic, this book. And so the series is that story. So the first bit is all true. And then it's what happens to these sailors whilst they're stuck in the ice, freezing cold, very hungry. And there you have to watch the rest, see what happens. There's a brilliant cast. I really enjoyed episode one. I'm really excited to watch the rest of the, the season. A couple of Game of Thrones actors in there. Kieran Hines plays Mance Raider in Game of Thrones and Tobias Menzies. But also Jared Harris, who I think is, is a stunning actor. You know, Chernobyl was one of last year's big, big TV hits for me, certainly. And obviously he's been in Mad Men and loads of other stuff as well. What was it like working with these with these guys? Amazing. It really was. Jared Harris, I just love it. It's always struck me as a sort of actor's actor. In Mad Men, he was just sublime. You're absolutely right. And I think he... I think Chernobyl, he did maybe after, that was his next job, I think, after the terror. But yeah, and looks just like his dad, Richard Harris, and has loads of anecdotes about him. And he's fiercely intelligent, frighteningly intelligent, the brightest man in any room. It's kind of, kind of scary. But I remember I was setting up for a shot in an opera box, the scene at the opera, and I was really nervous and really sort of, you know, kind of way where you think, oh God, I don't know what, I've got nothing to say to him. We can't, although we both call ourselves actors, we're not in the same league at all. So I introduced him to a game called the Knob Game, where you just basically come up with song titles that have got the word love in, but you substitute the word love for knob. So you could say knob is in the air or uh, everlasting knob. And he really sort of enjoyed it. So we spent the whole day playing games like that. So he'd be doing a really intense scene and then he would sort of pull out and point at me and say puppy knob. So that was quite that was quite fun to do. But he was very kind and uh, yeah, lovely man. Funny you should say because we had a question on Twitter from David Martinson um, at D Martinson, and the first thing he says that he read that the terror was written by David, and I'm gonna I'm not gonna do this surname justice. Kajganich, who is not British. So what was the language convincing? Now I still think that English is the writer's first language. Am I correct? Yes, I think he comes from a Serbian background somewhere in his family. But yeah, he's from Ohio, I think. He's American. Yeah, lovely man. And he's the whole showrunner and wrote the whole thing and developed the whole programme. I think that the dialogue's bang on, actually. He's a bit of an Anglophile, David. He comes over as much as he, as he can from uh, Los Angeles and he sucks up the whole sort of British British thing. He, he loves going to the theatre and his writing is just sublime. Even I, re I remember the, the stage instructions, the screen instructions between the dialogue. He's written like some sort of 
haiku poem. It's just beautiful. Another screenwriter might say the wind blows and the tent flaps open, but he'll say, you know, the, the, the tundra kisses the canvas of the, and you think, Christ, this is gorgeous. So um, yeah, I think he got it spot on and became obsessed. He's, he's a bit of a sort of a, not a Bear grills, a sort of Ray Mears, a survivalist type guy. So he's got this little ponytail and his little round glasses and you know you could plonk him in the in the wilderness in sort of Oregon for a year and he, he will survive. So he's got a real vested interest in this whole whole thing, and he loves the supernatural and ghosts and all that and all that type of stuff. So he's perfect, really, for it. The second question that David has: you were saying about playing the knob game. <laughs> he also asks: Did you take away any other best practices from working with such a huge ensemble of wonderful actors? Well, a lot of the actors are theatre actors, so there's a real company feel to it. It just felt like we were all doing some sort of stage show. My character was slightly different to the others because the other boys were all on the ships and they go into the ice and they're all supposed to be sort of they're all sailors. They had a sort of boot camp. So I think they went out to Budapest two or three weeks before and they were put through basic seaman skills you know tying knots and all that sort of stuff they spoke with historians about what it was like what their diet would have been uh, which apparently is like largely made up of pate and christmas pudding sort of dense moistureless food so they they would all have that experience whereas my character has been on a, an arctic expedition before with jared harris's character has just got married and his wife won't let him do any more cold weather work. So he sends these boys off to, you know, whatever happens to them. So my character stays back in Blighty. So I, I didn't really consult much with the other actors, just occasionally would have a very small scene as part of a flashback, maybe. But they were all in, we were all in the same hotel, beautiful hotel in, in Budapest proper sort of AMC money so that was just lovely I learned how to drink a lot really well some local vodka with the actors there it's funny we were filming on a tiny island a couple of months after in Croatia must have had a population of about 12 people so you'd be walking around this island there's nothing there just sheep and and this small hotel and then you'd see two or three guys who all had these big Edwardian sort of Victorian mutton chops and you think, oh, they're in the show. <laughs> every every now and again, you just see someone, you think, oh, yeah, definitely. He's definitely in the terror. We sort of overtook this island. Talking about historical authenticity, Alexa Price on Twitter, at DownEast underscore Alexa, immediately responded to our tweet about having you on. I believe she's maybe doing a PhD about Ross. Her question is, what's it like playing such a fascinating historical figure? And how did you meet the challenge of building a character who doesn't necessarily appear in every episode, but is so important throughout? Alexa's brilliant. I think I follow her on Twitter. She's obsessed with Ross, my character, James Ross, who was described ridiculously as the most handsomest man in the British Navy. That's what they wrote. <laughs> and I'm only saying this because obviously you boys can, are, are subject to this horrific ginger middle-aged man you see before you and your listeners will, will hear it. But yeah, totally miscast. But Alexa, you're absolutely right, has studied him as part of her PhD. So she's forgotten more about the character than I'll ever know. But her information was re is really useful on Twitter to find out the background of this character. He joined the Navy, I think, when he was 12 years old. If you can imagine joining the forces age 12, his very best friend is Crozier, who's the lead character in the Terror. And Franklin's wife begs 
Ross to go out there and send an expedition, begs the Admiralty to go and find her husband. And there were lots and lots of different expeditions that went off to try and find these men in the ice, none of which were, were successful. Doing all that sort of information of, of Ross's, Ross's background as he, he discovered the magnetic North Pole at one point. So his story is as big as any of the other stories. This isn't his story, if that makes sense. So although he appears in it, it's like that old joke of the two actors and, and one says, I've just got a job in this brand new play called Hamlet. And the other actor said, oh, really? What, what, what's it about? And the first actor said, well, it's about this grave digger who meets the prince. <laughs> and so it's exactly the same as that. So although he's a, he's a big character and he's got a fantastic life, this isn't his story at all. So when he pops up, it's good to know that, know that that's the type of character he is. But also it's not in the script for you to tell a story, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So we had another question from a listener, Aditi Misra. This came via Instagram at its ADTN. In the terror, how did they manage to capture that landscape? You mentioned earlier that it was filmed in Budapest, um, so not not in, you weren't you know up in the Arctic itself. How much of it was CGI and how much is on location? Most of it was filmed in Budapest, which is a great place to film. So much stuff is filmed out there. I've been out there quite a few times for different different things. We did all the interior stuff out there. So a lot of the ship stuff at sea, all that was indoors with uh, green screen and CGI. And then any dialogue scenes that were filmed outside tents or in, amongst the camp were all filmed in Croatia about sort of four or five months after the internal stuff. So it was such a fun job. I, I, I auditioned for another role in it as, as the ship's doctor and months went by and I didn't hear anything. As, as, it's, as you guys know, if you don't get the job, you don't know you don't get it. You just don't know until you see someone else playing playing the role on TV and then you can start to weep and let it go. So I thought, well, I haven't got it, I haven't heard. And then I got a call from my agent who said, yeah, they, they, they don't want you for that role. Um, but there is a small role, which it's just one day's filming, playing the lead character's best mate. Would you want to do that? So I said, yeah, at this point, I had no idea it's filmed in, in Budapest. So I said, yeah, that'd be great. You know, Ridley Scott's behind it. It's it's it would be really good, It'd be good experience. And yeah, of course I do, I'd love to do it. And then it turned out it was filmed in Budapest. So we went out and we filmed the one scene. And at the end of the scene, thanks very much, Richard, we'll send you back to your hotel. And then I was flying out back to the UK the next day. That evening, this is a ridiculous story. You might want to cut all of this out. <laughs> so I go back to the hotel and I'm really pleased because I've had a good day. I didn't forget any of my lines. And so I thought I'm going to buy a bottle of the local Kaiser. Horrible vodka. And uh, I had a vodka and a burger. And I started to think I should say thank you to everyone for, for giving me the role. The note paper that put in these posh hotels. And I wrote a letter. The, the Kaiser has brought me out in all these red blotches, incidentally. So I, I decided to write three letters. I'd write one to Jared to say thank you for the scene and mention the knob game. And then I would write thank you to the writer and a thank you to the director. I knew that all the boys were downstairs in the bar. I would run down, give them these letters and say, can you, can you give these letters to the respective people, please? I'm flying out tomorrow. That was my drunken Kaisered up brain. So I wrote these, these letters were just gushing, thanking them for the opportunity. And although it's only one day, I gained so much from it and blah, blah, blah. Sealed these letters with my vodka stained tongue and then ran down and saw the runner, the studio runner in the bar. So I went up to him. He didn't speak much English, but I gave him the letters and I said, give these to these people. And then fast forward the next day, I wake up, sort of not, not much memory of it. And I 
get to the airport and I get onto the plane and I see <laughs> the, the, the showrunner in first class reading the letter and I'll just, and it all brought back, I thought, why have I done that? Can I get the letter off him? So I thought if I just hide at the back, uh, I just won't see him. Anyway, as we landed in, in UK, we were all getting our bags and he spotted me and he rushed over and said, oh my God, Rich, the letter, it's amazing. Two weeks later, my agent calls and said that they've written some more scenes for you. So they're worried it's all going to be set at sea. They wanted to come back to Blighty in a couple of scenes to see what's happening. And of course, you're there and, you know, the girlfriend and wives are there and the Admiral's there. So they plunked in a few more of these scenes. And then they had another scene which was filmed, which we would film in Croatia. So then we went to Croatia. So all from that one day's filming and three drunken letters, I ended up being in sort of two or three episodes. And I'm not saying it was my letter that did it. I, I hope it was something to do with <laughs> the acting bit, but it was probably the letter. Yeah. No, but also, I mean, <laughs> they don't necessarily have to be drunken, but... <laughs> Letters to directors and casting directors and producers and all of that. I'm, I'm sure all of us have stories that we won't bore listeners with right now. There's the, how that, that has advanced our various careers. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big, big sort of letter writer anyway and, and, and gratitude. And it's so, you boys know, it's so hard to even just be thought of, let alone get in the room or, you know, be whittled down to get a recall. So to be up, as soon as they shout action, all that stuff is is just amazing to get what you've got. And I never, ever forget that. And it's it's so hard. I mean, I, I'm, none of us work for a year now. So we're all really badly missing it. But I'm, I'm, I've always been grateful for it. So I'm, I'm really pleased for Kaiser Vodka and, and sending letters. But I send every, you know, send everyone, send letters to the milkman to thank him for the gold top and everybody gets one of my correspondence card you boys will get something i'm sure in the post tomorrow <laughs> so kessenham for the hungarian vodka yes yes absolutely yeah good pronunciation thank you i've spent many a, a holiday in budapest it's a great city i love so it so good so good on facebook friend of the show dan chris has asked the situation in the terror is so desperate what was the atmosphere like on set it was quite light-hearted, actually. It was very male, very macho, lots of testosterone, very very few women in the whole series, but very few women on, on set as well. It was quite sort of roister-doister, boys abroad sort of, sort of thing. I know when I went out later to do the outdoor stuff in Croatia, they were filming towards the end of the series, and it's no spoiler to say a lot of the, like the characters are losing weight by then. So a lot of the actors were on diets, so doing a juice diet. I remember being in, this, in the catering tent and this huge table of fruit and this blender, and that was that was them for the next couple of few weeks. Whereas my character, of course, who doesn't really leave Britain, was eating schnitzel and fried eggs and red wine and stuff. But everyone was brilliant. Very rarely do you, do you have that. There's normally they saved us. If you can't spot the, the rotten egg, it's it's you. So it must have been me on, on, the, on the Kaiser. The rest of the casts were lovely. The set the setups were all very respectful in terms of the scene. A lot of the historical research, as I say, a lot of the lot of the actors come from a theatre background. So a lot of them will work together before. You mentioned that, that some of them worked together in uh, Game of Thrones. So the set was quite lighthearted and friendly. I, I loved it. I would have done it forever. It was brilliant. Of course... Not only have you starred in The Line of Duty and The Terror, you also were in Giggle Biz. And on Facebook, Harold Lotley 
is a big fan and his question was were there any real challenges to filming the cooking scenes and how did you find your preparation for doing Gigglebiz varied for preparing for Kieran Bloom or Sir Ross? Um, so for those listeners that may not be familiar with the, uh, the series Gigglebiz, it's best described as, as Little Britain for little kids, really. It's a CBeebies show run by Justin Fletcher. It's run for four or five series now. And he plays these quite, quite grotesque, but very, very funny characters. It's a sketch show for kids. And there's a character called Dina Lady, which is Justin in, in, in drag as this sort of TV cook. And I play her assistant, Tommy Tommy. And basically each sketch is we make something. For example, if they're making rock cakes, Dina Lady will use real rocks. And Tommy Tommy is the sort of straight guy will say, oh, you, you can't, you don't put real rocks in rock cake. They're called that because they look like rocks. Or, or she'll make a chocolate mousse and she'll bring on a, <laughs> can you guess? Bring on a mousse and pour melted chocolate over it. A Thai curry, which well, I happen to be wearing a tie for that episode and she cuts it off and puts it in the curry and blah, 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 spring rolls. And so, yeah, in terms of the preparation for that one, I actually had, I end up eating the food that she makes. She sort of forces me at the end of the sketch to eat the food. So chocolate chip muffin, which is a muffin with real chips in. So we ate that. We had a smooth, a full English smoothie. So the contents of a, a full fry up went into a blender. And so I had to drink that. So in terms of preparation, just going, missing lunch, really, and going in to L3 and filming filming 26 episodes of, of me eating weird weird stuff it's quite interesting for because it goes out on kids tv you can't for example I would drink the smoothie and then we did one take where I drank it and then sort of covered my mouth as if I was going to be sick and then immediately children's tv said no you can't don't show that you can't show somebody about to be sick so it's kind of strange but I'd probably get recognized more for Gigglebiz than any of the other stuff and I try and tell them I've played Romeo, for God's sake, on stage. I've been work for Ridley Scott. Nothing. It's uh, it's just giggle biz. But it's quite old now. So the kids that watch it then are sort of teenagers now who, who see me buying my Kaiser Tesco or something and they'll come up and pose for a picture. <laughs> so I think that's the last of all the listeners' questions. Just a reminder that you can find us at TVDNAPod on Instagram and Twitter. And also you can find us on Facebook if you put TV DNA in the search bar. So make sure to like and subscribe and tell your friends. That's at TV DNA pod. Enough of our socials. How can the listeners see what you're up to, Rich? They can follow me on Twitter, which is at Rich Sutton Actor, or on Instagram, which is at Richard Sutton Actor. And if they want to see what my dinner looks like, there'll be pictures of that or pictures of my colourful socks or, or retweeting this fantastic podcast. So they can check me out there. And finally, Rich, do you have any other projects you've been working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? Built a website during the first lockdown of short stories. I just asked a lot of actor mates to read short stories onto their phone and I sort of edited them together and it's totally free and no signing up or anything. It's a bit like YouTube and people like Derek Jacobi and Simon Callow, David Morrissey, all doing these beautiful classic short stories. So if anybody who listens who's into actors and stuff, it's totally free. They can maybe check that out. Yeah, what's the website? Onceuponaquarantine.com. It's been really lovely chatting to you, Rich, and, and hearing all of your fantastic stories. 
Thanks, boys. It was such a treat doing it. Thank you. My first podcast. So thank you for listening and giving me the chance. Great. Well, that's that's us for this week. Thanks very much, Neil. Have a great week, guys. Thank you, Damo. Thanks, guys. I really enjoyed myself. And huge, huge thanks to our special guest. It's been a real privilege, Rich. Thanks for giving us your time. We look forward to seeing you soon. An absolute treat. Thank you, gents. Nice to see you.